Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Super real. Hey, I'm Julian Morgans, and you're listening to What It Was Like, the show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events what it was like. I remember the first time I ever heard about the Blair Witch Project. It was 1999, and I think I was about 14 years old, and I was working my first job which was cutting apricots on a farm. And we were working in this really hot shed, and there were a bunch of older teenagers who were, who were there also cutting apricots. And they were talking about this film that they'd seen. Uh, and, and I remember them saying it was called The Blair Witch Project. And, and they all repeated how goddamn terrifying it was. And for those of you who haven't seen The Blair Witch Project, it follows three young film students who are attempting to investigate an urban legend about a witch. And uh, apparently the, the witch's name was Blair. And, uh, and the students, they start out by interviewing some people in this small town. They're kind of like, hey, have you heard of the Blair Witch? And then the, old, you know, the people in the small town are like, yeah, you guys should go hike out in the woods. And then so they go hiking out in this forest where the, where the witch apparently lived. Uh, and of course, they get lost. Horrible things happen. And uh, as, as you'd remember, you watch all of this unfold via this really shaky handheld footage supposedly shot by these students who, who went missing. And I think that was the thing that captured the imagination of, uh, of the world, but also, you know, the kids in the shed who were cutting apricots with me, is that it was all supposedly real. You might remember that this is how the Blair Witch Project was, was marketed. The idea was that this footage had been found in a forest after the filmmakers went missing, and then some enterprising studio had cut it all together and released it as a feature film. And I remember one of the kids talking about it with absolute authority that the footage was definitely a hundred percent real and the students in the forest were definitely a hundred percent dead killed by a witch and that idea even just the potential for that idea to be possibly true was terrifying so of course i had to go see it for myself 
And yeah, yeah, it was it was a really scary film. Um, by the way, if you haven't seen the movie and you're going to be upset about spoilers, you should go see the movie um, because there's going to be some spoilers today. Anyway, for me, the film is really also scary because it plays on this universal truth. And I think the universal truth is that there's just something about grainy video that is innately uncomfortable. Our human brains just don't like it. I don't know why, but but think of um, Poltergeist or, or The Ring, you know, the Naomi Watts um, adaptation of the Japanese movie. Um, or Paranormal Activity, or um, Cloverfield, or uh, Unfriended, which is a new one. Uh, what have they all got in common? They all feature loads of really crappy video. And for some reason, that's scary. And I think I've always just been impressed with how the film so masterfully manipulated the human fear of the unseen. Like, you never see the witch, not once. But then also how the film, it's just this masterful example of, of the American dream in action. What do I mean by that? I mean, the film was made on a shoestring, okay? It was made by a couple of film graduates who maxed out their credit cards to get it done, and then it went on to not just become a financial success, but but a cultural phenomenon that somehow rolled around the planet to find me in an apricot shed in regional South Australia. And I just think that's the ultimate version of creative success. I mean, I'm a creative, so I, I think about creative success a lot. And, uh, and what does success look like? Well, for me, it looks like making $249 million at the box office on a film that you shot for 40000 That's success. But there's another reason that I still often think about The Blair Witch Project. And it's the way that it got made by two unknowns who had no studio backing. And they just bootstrapped the whole thing like a kind of shonky startup. And they didn't spend years trying to secure funding, you know, grant money. And they didn't go that route. They didn't they didn't spend ages just talking about this thing that they were going to do. They just did it. And then it paid off. And I've been thinking about that because, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's the opposite of what I've been doing in my own life recently. Um, I think I've been beating myself up recently for spending too much of my own time pitching projects instead of just making them. So my producer and, and business partner, uh, Rachel, um, her and I run this company, Super Real. You might hear the word super real at the start of this show. So that's our company. And we also make TV shows. But uh, we've spent the last few years pitching all these projects to streamers and broadcasters. And and we're always close, you know, we're always like so close to getting a deal across the line. And it feels like we're just one month away from, from having something greenlit and it's going to move into production and it's going to be fantastic. Uh, and then, and then kind of just nothing happens. We'll send a few emails, there's no reply. Um, and then finally, we, we, get, we get a message that um, actually the concept doesn't flawlessly align with our Q3 objectives. And sorry, but um, let's put a pin in it and we'll come back to it in, uh, you know, and then just nothing happens. I think living like that is financially unrewarding, but it's also just, it's just really boring. And we realized recently that we, we love making stuff. You know, that's why we got into this business because we want to make content and we want to tell stories. And not just spend our lives pitching projects that don't really go anywhere. So we've resolved to stop pitching and to just make things. It's actually one of the reasons that we've made this podcast. You should know that in 2021, we, we pitched this show around. You know, We took it to all of the big audio companies. We're like, hey, it's going to be an amazing show, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they all said, no, um, it's an untested entity, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, so we decided to make it ourselves. And I mean, I'm not going to claim that we're taking over um, Rogan, but uh, hey, We've spent the last couple of weeks at the top of the charts. We're doing okay. So our motto for 2024 is we're going to make more and we're going to pitch less. And 
through this process, I just keep thinking about the guys who made the Blair Witch Project. I keep thinking about how they didn't wait for anyone's permission or anyone's approval. They just started making their film. I think it's a good lesson for life. I think if you can do something, whether it's writing a book or starting a business or, I don't know, learning a new skill, knitting a scarf, learning to play chess, whatever it is, I think spending hours and weeks and years getting your ducks all lined up in a row and, you know, I can't really start this thing until my ducks are in a row, get them in a row, it's, it's just a waste of time. And I think just, just starting's better. So I wanted to test this theory. I wanted to test this theory on one of the guys who wrote and directed The Blair Witch Project. So I hit up Dan Myrick, who is half of the duo that created the franchise, and Dan wrote back and agreed to do an interview. So as you'll hear, Dan and I talked about the process of getting The Blair Witch Project made, uh, what it was like spawning and, and writing a, a cultural phenomenon, um, and then we get into Dan's life philosophy on how to get stuff done. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a slightly nerdy conversation, but, but trust me, you're going to walk away wanting to start or maybe even finish that project that you've always been thinking about. And so now I bring you Dan Myrick. Hey Dan, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So let's start with your background Give me a couple of dot points on where you grew up and how you got into filmmaking. Well, I grew up in Sarasota, Florida on uh, basically an island key called Lombok Key. Um, spent most of my childhood there, kind of being a little bit of a beach bum. And mm -hmm. uh, was, you know, took after my mom as far as arts more concerned she was an artist and a musician and so i kind of took after her and um over the years i got interested into in um photography and she she bought me my first uh, still camera and then a couple years later sort of the advent of video came along and i got my hands on a video camera so i started kind of learning about motion pictures and how to tell a story and then i signed up for the university of central florida film program and got accepted there and that's really where i started to learn how to make you know movies you know where getting an understanding of how movies were put together and that's where i sort of met my core group of people that i worked with on blair and of whom i i talk with to this day so so that's mm -hmm. sort of the basic gist of the of of my of my growing up in, in florida yeah cool and so you made Blair, you made the Blair Witch Project with Eduardo Sanchez. Mm -hmm. Did you meet him at college? I did. Yeah. He was, uh, we were both in the same class and um, brainstormed on a few loose ideas after that. And um, then a year or two after we graduated, we, we kind of circled back and decided that we wanted to do the Woods movie is what we called it back in those days. Okay. All right. So tell me, tell me more about the Woods movie. What was the light bulb moment that led to that idea? It's hard to pin down an actual moment, but I do remember pretty early on, I remember bringing up that I used to be a big fan of those old In Search Of shows in the 70s with Leonard Nimoy was narrating, sort of pseudo-documentary style. So we were both kind of children of that era of UFOs and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and these documentaries out there. And some were sort of real, some weren't. So we just love that vibe and that kind of feel of that genre. 
So that led us to thinking about, God, it'd be cool to do a movie that sort of feels that way, but it's a, it's a movie. And it's just a single camera going through the trees, sees this house with just a single light on it. And you're just kind of forced as an audience member to kind of watch as this camera goes into this house. And it just gave us the creeps. We just, our hair stood up on, on, on our arms as we were talking about this in the living room. I said, man, that would be so creepy. And that was sort of the first kernel of creativity. We're like, how do we build a film that feels like that throughout the whole movie? Um, and then one thing led to another, we kind of brainstormed the premise and that evolved over time. But we kind of stuck to that original feeling and that conceit of it feeling like a documentary. All right. So, so, so talk me through, I mean, there's so many elements of this film that have become, you know, part of filmmaking folklore these days. Um, tell me about how those elements kind of fell into place. Like walk me through the process. Well, um, we came up with the idea that it was going to be three film students, so they would have access to gear and equipment and all that, but it would be, you know, typical film school gear. So nothing too elaborate. And I said, well, you know, we need to raise some money to get this thing done. We, you know, we need, we can't wing it. We need to, we need to plan it out. We need to do it the way we see it. So we put together a little eight minute investor reels, what we called it. Um, like a pilot. Essentially. Yeah. So, so that's what we did. We went and shot this little mini proof of concept and it was pretty effective. Um, and then our co-producer, Mike Manello caught wind that John Pearson was coming into town, who's the producer's rep for Spike Lee and Kevin Smith and all those guys. So it was my end to getting to know John. I just approached John and said, Hey John, you know, I know you probably have a thousand videos that people send to you, but I've got this little eight minute pitch tape. I'd like you to check out if you get the time. He goes, sure, sure. Send it to me. So. That was it. He went back to New York and I sent him the tape. I figured I'd never hear from him again. So well, the following Wednesday, he called up and said, hey, Dan. Yes, it's John. So yeah. I said, is this shit real? <laughs> and he totally bought the conceit of the tape. So just to, so, so clarify something. Yeah. So even just the, like your, your pitch reel here, you still had this this kind of like, this is real, like that was yeah. your angle, even yeah. from the very start. Our angle was that we, as a film company, Haxon Films, which was our company name at the time, we were getting rights to this found footage. And okay. it was discovered in the woods. We were getting rights to this found footage and we're going to go through it and edit it together and show the world. And so the pitch tape basically described the backstory of that. That's so, brilliant. So it's he so was smart. like, Are you, when are you guys getting this footage? I said, John, it's all, it's all made up. It's all fake. We're going to shoot the movie that we're saying we're discovered. He goes, oh, I love it. Blah, blah, blah. So he paid us, and that was our first chunk of money, to go and get the, go out and shoot the actual film. Um, you guys were fairly systematic. You know, you were fairly driven about it. I'd say there was an element of sort of young entrepreneurs about you. You're not your average sort of like scrappy, like filmmaking stoners. There's no, I mean, we, you know, I, you know, I had been around the block a while. I mean, I have worked in commercials and, you know, I, I had DP'd on some small independent films and stuff like that. We were a little bit, a few years out of film school. And so we sort of, you know, knew you had to have a good concept and a good execution and all that, but you also had to kind of be realistic about the budget you, you have to work with. And so it's better, I've always said, it's better to shoot something smaller with the money you have rather than trying to stretch that money out to make some big epic opus that looks like crap. So, so yeah. you know, Blair Witch was as much a, a, a film driven by 
economics as it was by by creativity. We it was just the most realistic film that we could pull off at that time. Talk to me about this sort of like experimental structure of production. So so rather than just like scripting it and deciding to go and shoot it and then, you know, at night you go back to your hotel room and you know, you decided to to shoot it like this torturous experiment, like this camping trip. Yeah. Like why did what was that about? Why why did you do it? Well, I mean, the goal of the scene is to be as honest and authentic as possible. So everything on a normal movie set is fighting against that process. You've got cameras and lights around and there's crew people sitting over having a cigarette and all that's just outside of the periphery of this little capsule that you're trying to capture with the actor. So our logic was, well, how about we just set this whole stage up where you don't have to worry about all that as much. You can be immersed in the environment, play your character out to the hilt, um, that you're going to get something really astonishing. And we we set up this system where we used GPS devices so the actors could walk through the woods unassisted by a crew member or anything. They could just go the way the crow flies on the arrow. So they wake up out of their tent. They knew where they had to walk. They walk when they get to the location they needed to be at where we had the gag set up, there would be a little milk crate and it would have fresh tapes for them and fresh batteries for their camera. And then they were told to put the old stuff in, in the crate. We'd come get it. We'd have food bars and stuff for them in there. But again, we were trying to minimize their interaction with the film process. And Ed and I would follow them through the woods and we were literally in full camo so they wouldn't see us and be aware of us. And if the camera swung around, they wouldn't see Ed and I standing there watching them. So we were hiding and observing their performance and kind of guiding them along the way, but all with the intention of trying to minimize the operation of making a movie. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a beautiful filmmaking philosophy, but, but as a director, you want to direct. Well, that I, we were I joking about that. It's like this is the undirecting movie, right? And and um, yeah, but but the reality is, you know, like, and I don't compare myself to any like great musicians or anything. But you know, when you like a drummer, for example, the best drummers in the world know when not to drum, right? Yeah. All right. So let's talk about production for a minute. So you got your actors. You've rigged up this like GPS treasure hunt. And and you guys are hanging back and kind of watching, observing how it plays out. Mm -hmm. um, where was it shot, and ha like how many how many nights were you out there? It was shot primarily at Seneca Creek State Park in Maryland. So we had a kind of the run of the whole park, and it's just a bunch of woods and creeks, and it's beautiful actually. It's really nice, but yeah. we like that area for a couple of reasons. One, Ed lived there, so we had sort of a base camp for free, which was a, a big okay, part nice. of it. But also, that part of the country um, has a lot of that folklore, that old kind of colonial yeah. Indian folklore, you know, Salem witch trials, all that's in the DNA of that whole part of the country. Um, and last but not least, you know, we shot in October, and the woods just look really creepy in the Northeast when all these deciduous trees lose their leaves. It's just sparse and barren and spooky. So for those reasons, it was a great location. So Ed and I, a couple of weeks prior, just kind of walked the entire grounds, all those woods and found perfect locations. Okay, this would be a great campsite for night one. And then, oh, here's a place. This looks like a coffin. 
you know, this big rock. And I remember saying, this looks like a big, we'll call it Coffin Rock. Okay, it's Coffin Rock, because she can do a little spiel here on Coffin Rock on our way to the camp too. We just mapped out the whole whole plan and and um, sort of back backward engineered our script into that into that process, a, a process that that allowed the actors to remain in character and have the freedom of movement, but still kind of be tied to this narrative kind of rope that we had, this path that we had for them. Mm. But at the same time, when and we got the tapes from those milk crates, we would watch them every night. Those were our dailies, right? So we'd watch all the stuff they shot that day. And that was exhilarating because we just got so much good stuff uh, yeah. when you're seeing it on the screen that like Heather and her kind of confessional scene where she's, you know, pointing the camera back at herself, that just blew us out of the water when we saw her doing that. The actors, they were all out in the forest, you know, they were camping for real. Yeah. Were they getting tired and, and fed up with it? Yeah. I mean, look, you get tired and fed up with a normal movie where you've got craft services and all that stuff, you know, yeah, let, that's alone, right. yeah. let alone having to actually camp, you know, I mean, the only upside, it was only eight days. So, you know, I've been camping my whole life and you could pretty much tolerate anything for a week, you know. Okay. And, and talk to me about the final scene, the house in the woods. How did that come together? That, you know, that was scripted pretty early on. We knew we wanted to end up in the house um, in some form or fashion. We didn't know what the actual ending was going to be. Um, that was one of the toughest things for Ed and I to come up with. We, we were really agonizing over it. We didn't really come up with that particular shot until like three days before we started shooting. So of Mike standing in a corner. So um yeah that's the famous ending that's... yeah and it's it's a tricky thing because we've sort of painted ourselves into a corner because you don't ever see the monster right and then we get to the end we want this big payoff but we don't want some witch in a costume or you know I mean, how do we how no. do we give the payoff for the audience so we decided to have mike standing in the corner something that was just unsettling and i just remember thinking that some of the scariest things that i've seen is not necessarily something overt you know like oh there's a guy with a baseball bat you know it's something that you don't know what the intentions are it's it's an old lady standing in the woods staring back at you menacingly like what the hell right i mean it's something about being off balance off kilter and when you go down into that basement and you hear the screaming, Heather screaming, and you turn that corner and Mike, you're expecting to be blood on the ground and he's, you know, whatever. And he's just standing in the corner. You're like, what? That's just one of those things that just taps into a part of the brain that can't calculate why that's going on, which makes it more scary. So, so that's what we landed on. Hey, so we're just going to stop here for a quick ad break, but stick around because we'll be right back with more What It Was Like. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's let's talk about the launch. Uh, when you cut the movie together and you and Ed watched it for the first time, did you get a tingle? Did you go, yeah, this is going to blow up? So there were moments in the film that we thought were really compelling and good. I think it was about our third, our third cut. Um, we had a, a public screening. And at this screening, one of our mutual friends met a producer named Kevin Fox and told Kevin about, oh, my, my two buddies are doing this screening of this indie movie in Orlando. You want to come check it out? So Kevin said, yeah, sure. And Kevin was from LA and was connected to this agencies and stuff there. So he came out unannounced, completely anonymous and watched the movie. And after the movie, he, he came up to Ed and I just beaming. He said, I've never seen anything like this. And he was just glowing about the film. He said, you guys wow. need to realize something. And we go, and we said, what? He said, you're going to be famous. Really? Right. Like, oh man, <laughs> you're cool shit. Blah, 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 blah. And we, of course, we were all jazzed. You know, here's an LA producer saying, yo, you're going to be, you're going to be famous. Da, da, da. That's what every filmmaker wants to hear. Right. But yeah, he was dead on, man. So the film really launched at Sundance. Yeah. So, so you had that first screening. Tell me about the moment that you, I don't know, maybe you felt a bit nervous. Like maybe you felt like, oh, this is, this is gaining momentum that's out of our control. Um, tell me what was that moment? It really was kind of surreal. I mean, for the most part, because I had never been to Sundance and I, you know, this is our first feature film and 
Um, but yeah, once the movie screened, it did really well at the screening. It's like 1200 seat theater was packed and we were sort of just blown away, man. It was just like, oh my God, I can't believe the response. So, mm. um, so that was the first indications that things were really gaining momentum for us. And then the next day, just all hell broke loose. Next thing you know, we're like LA Times, is, they've assigned a reporter to us to follow us and sh shadow us the whole week and that sort of thing. Hmm. Did Hollywood just open up its arms at that point? You know, were you getting phone calls and invitations to go and hang out with Tom Hanks? And, you know, like. I mean, they did and they did in, in, the, in, the, in Hollywood's way, you know. Yeah. They're Tell never me about that. completely, they're, com they're never completely accepting of who you are. They're, they're accepting of what you are. And so we did the dance and we played the game. I mean, Cannes was like Sundance times 10. So when we were screening at Cannes and we won an award at Cannes and Artisan literally like paid for like, you know, a hundred or so trees to be set up on the beach to kind of make this fake woods that where they held the beach party at. And Mel Gibson was there and. Yeah. I mean, that's, so, that's really interesting to me that, you know, you young guys yeah. from Florida, you just got out of yeah. college, you'd made this movie and then you're meeting Mel Gibson on a beach. In 1999, Mel Gibson was one of the biggest actors in the world. He was huge. I mean, yeah, were, you, yeah. were you nervous? Were you like, this is surreal? How did you personally handle this, this transition from a nobody to somebody? Well, I, by nature, I'm a pretty easygoing guy, you know, and Ed is too. And we, 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 we're really good at keeping each other in check, you know, same with the whole group. We'd like, you know, like I said, we've been kind of bouncing around in the film business for a while and, um, and as exciting as it all was and as amazing as, as it all was, it, it really didn't go to our heads, you know, and we were enamored by the whole process and, and what was happening and, and trying to enjoy it as much as we, as much as we can. Um, you know, like I said earlier, you, you do a, but just a raft of interviews. I mean, you know, we woke up in Cannes starting at six in the morning. We have like 40 interviews to do that day. And it was exhausting. Yeah. Um, and we, then we quickly understood why actors and all are wearing sunglasses, you know, early in the morning as they're doing their interviews. Cause they're just, they're just beaten up. But, um, and at the same time, we're like, felt very fortunate that it was happening to us and that people were responding to our movie. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what you want is mm. you want people to like your work. Totally. Okay. So, I mean, I recognize that you're talking about the creative satisfaction of seeing your project work. It was pressing people's buttons in the way that, in the ways that you'd hoped. Uh, but, I, but I'm still interested, just one more sort of question on the, you know, superficial Hollywood shit. Uh, you know, what was the single most uh, I don't know, bizarre kind of invitation to a private, you know, cocaine party that you received or like a moment <laughs> on, uh, you know, private jet that you were like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Um, I mean, there were no cocaine parties. I guess we were not of that era, but um, there was certainly, we did, we did this dinner in the South of France with all the artists and executives. I don't know what they spent on this dinner. It was like incredible. I mean, we all had our own private chef and they had the silver domes, you know, I mean, they opened the <laughs> restaurant just for us. Wow. It, it must've been a $20,000 dinner. I don't know what they spent on that, but it was a celebratory dinner because the movie was just going ballistic, you know, publicity wise. And so they went all out for this dinner and, and Ed and I in the game, we're just looking at ourselves, just like literally 
two months prior to that, we were didn't know if we could pay our phone bill. And here we are sitting in the south of France at this five-star restaurant. And that, I mean, that's what dreams are made of, right? I mean, that's yeah. really, we're, we were living the dream. Um, How much did you guys make so, on the film, just in total? Uh, well, the film did like 249 million box office and, um, and you know, we all did well. I mean, none of us are rich by any stretch of the imagination, but we, we, we can live, you know, comfortable middle-class lifestyles. That was the one thing we said, we like, we can now live comfortably middle-class style lifestyle that all of our contemporary friends and peers are living. <laughs> and we we've been living like paupers uh, well into our thirties, and they're get off getting married and having houses and kids, and now we can finally do that. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, we we did we did for I mean for your first feature out of the starting gate, it was a dream come true. It really Absolutely. was. And not only did we do okay on Blair, but it set up so many other projects for us. It set up so many other opportunities that I still take advantage of to this day. So, um. You know, there was one moment, one of my favorite moments, I had a, a producer friend of mine was working on Spielberg's um, uh, film, and, and I, we just got invited to hang out on the set and kind of watch Spielberg work with Tom Cruise and all that. It was pretty awesome. And, and Kaczynski was there shooting and all that. This is so exciting, man, to see Spielberg at work. And, and then everyone broke for lunch. And then Spielberg walked up the steps right by us. And then my producer stands up behind me and says, Mr. Spielberg, my name is Kevin Fox, I'm producer of Blair Witch Project, and this is the director right here. And, and then Spielberg looked at me and, oh, I loved your movie, and just started chatting with me there on the steps. And we just got into this conversation for about 20 minutes about how I made the movie and, oh, I love that guy, the sound guy you had, he was great. And how did you guys, and just like the questions you were asking me, how did you guys do this, this, and that? And it was just surreal. It was like, I went from Spielberg, my idol, to like two filmmakers just talking about movies. Yeah. And it blew me away. And I got, and I just, and I remember there's a moment where I just had to stop and say, Mr. Spielberg, I can't tell you how much your films have influenced me. And, and one of the coolest things he said, you know, he said, Dan, we all influence each other. He said, Stanley was one of the biggest influence and he meant Kubrick, of course, but he yeah, said, Stanley course. was one of my biggest influences. And, um, and a lot of my, my work reflects his and everyone, we all feed off each other. And I thought that was just the coolest piece of advice he ever gave. And it was just so humbling. Yeah. Very um, humble. And then he said, then he looked at me and kind of like, oh, I have to get back to work. So, okay, cool. <laughs> and then, and everyone on the set's like looking up at me, like, who's this guy he's talking to? So on one level, very surreal, but on another level, like, oh, he's just a filmmaker like me. Mm. And he's, he's trying to figure it out just like I am. And, um, and to see that that he was pretty humble and approachable just made me feel even better about it. It's like, oh, he wasn't a jerk. He could have been, but he wasn't. And mm. um, so I really appreciated that. He took the time to kind of sit there and chat with me on it. And that's why I try to do the same with people that ask me about making movies and whatnot. It's like, we all, we're all part of the same DNA. We're all influence each other's work. We are all part of the same goal of, of moving people and and uh, however we can help each other out, it's it's worthwhile. Um, all right, this this feels to me like a, a good segue into sort of the the meat of the of the interview here. So I want to talk about. So I had a show, got into Netflix a few years ago, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm on here. Like that's I never I, I don't need to worry anymore. Like it's going to be easy pitching stuff from now on in. I'm I'm a Netflix guy. I'm part of the club. 
Um, and that, and that yeah. just hasn't been my experience at all. It feels to me like, so in the last couple of months, I've, I've just been reflecting on it. And, I, and I've come up with this, this thesis, and that is that pitching absorbs just as much time, energy, your creative bandwidth as just making things does. The only difference is that you can be pitching for years and get nowhere, but if you're making things for years, at least you'll have a couple of films that you've made or a couple of podcasts or yeah. a couple of books that you've written or a couple of you know albums that you've recorded, whatever, whatever your thing is. Your story seems to suggest that my thesis is right. You should just make things, don't pitch them. What do you think? All the above. I don't think you should put all your eggs in any one basket because um, that's to me, I've found the most effective way where you've got one foot in Hollywood. You never know what may happen. You may get lucky. I've had scripts that I kind of discounted and they got picked up. Like, yeah, we're going to do this movie. Oh, okay, shit. All right, let's go do the movie. Um, but I never let that define my schedule. I, I, to, I always looked at Hollywood as like, it's cool, fun place over here. And I can pitch it. And if, like, if they like me, then they'll hire me. But I don't rely on that phone ringing for me. Hmm. Um, I, I then will write something small, will bang around and raise the money for it and go out and shoot it myself and do a cool job. And I've had the most satisfaction and, the, and honestly the most success doing that on those independent efforts. But yeah, just always be moving forward. That's my, my thing. I see people, they'll get one project and they'll get fixated on one project. And we're pitching it to all these places all over town and they've been pitching for a year da, 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 and like, and they, and all else goes by the wayside. So, well, you can't, you can't do that because you could spend three years pitching something or 10 years pitching something and nothing ever happens. And you just spent 10 years of life doing nothing. Mm. So, um, and movement has a lot to, uh, has a big effect on people in Hollywood. If you're, if you have movement, like if you're making a movie, People hear you're making a movie. They see you're doing stuff. You've got a reel. You're building relationships. Um, that's one of the most important things. If you're if you're just pitching, you're not really moving. You're just kind of mm. shelling around. So, yeah. Um, but like when I was first starting out in Hollywood, I had the script called Savant. It, I thought it was an awesome script, and it it uh, was making the rounds at Hollywood. It was, you know, um, it got picked up by by um, landmark and they were going to make the movie and they hired this big writer to come in and do rewrites on it. And I was all excited, man, this is going to be a big budget movie I'm going to do. And it churned and burned in development for like two years. And I just got tired of waiting around. I said, well, I, I'm not, I'm not going to keep another summer open in hopes that this movie is going to get greenlit. So I'm going to go do this little, you know, uh, web series things I've been, I've been thinking about doing. This is back in 2005 or whatever. So we went and shot this awesome series in Venice Beach that um, ended up being one of the first streaming series on on Netflix. So we're like, if the Savant project comes to fruition and says, yeah, we we, we can do it, that's a good problem to have. Then mm -hmm. you got a scheduling issue that you have to work out, but that's a great problem to have. So just don't let any one of those things be the your, your, your sole uh, fixation. I, I tell people, diversify, have one foot in Hollywood. You've got some projects you're pitching, great, but but maintain that movement that you're doing on the ground. If you can keep, continue rolling cameras and doing something independently, then at least you feel like you haven't wasted your life away. <laughs> hoping yeah. the phone will ring, hoping a pitch will land, because that, that game can go on forever, man. 
but like my wife always tells me and has to remind me <laughs> is that try to enjoy the journey. Like if you, if, if you're a writer and you enjoy writing, then enjoy writing, right? Right. Cause you enjoy it. And if you sell a script, that's, that's a bonus. Okay? I mean, I think one of the reasons that people often don't go and do their own thing is that it's a lonely journey. It's hard and you feel like you don't yeah. have the backing of some big entity behind you. You don't have money. You're maxing out your credit card to get it finished. You know, that's a that's a taxing experience. That's that's stressful. It can be a little it scary. Is, yeah. Did you I'm guessing Oh, it can be a lot scary. I'm guessing that on Blair Witch Project, for example, you know, you guys went out on a limb. You went on a out on a financial limb. Were there moments where you were like, Jesus, why are we why are we doing this? This is this is dumb. Oh yeah, there's a lot of those moments, and and you're you're you know I was living with my girlfriend at the time and couldn't pay my phone bill and yeah I'm, as a matter of fact I couldn't I couldn't even call back from Sundance because the phone was turned off so you know it, it, but I, I always had this little voice in the back of my head that we believed in the project we believed it had something special. I've got probably two more questions for you. Uh, the first is, is there a through line in your work? Are you an artist who's trying to say something? And if so, what is it? That's a good question. But I do think there is a through line to my work. And it's and it's something I kind of saw retroactively. It's like, oh, I'm I'm there's a seems to be a theme, a common theme to the stuff that that interests me. And I think it's about like the human condition and what makes people believe in things has always fascinated me. Like talking about my childhood with like UFOs and Bigfoot and stuff like that. I was never a big believer in the phenomena myself, but I was fascinated by the people that did believe in it. And what is it about their world and their need for purpose in life and whether it's religion or crystal healing or UFOs or aliens, what is it about these phenomena that these people are so drawn to? And so I've done these explorations and some of the films that I've I've done you know, played on those themes, and most of the films I've done played on those. Even Blair Witch could be categorized in that in that arena. Mm. I'm going to borrow a question here from one of my favorite podcasts, How I Built This, and uh, the host of that show, Guy Roz. He talks to entrepreneurs, and he often finishes with this question, which is, um, as a percentage, what degree of your success do you attribute to luck? Um, I'd say there's a large percentage, probably in the neighborhood of 20, 25% that, that is happenstance. You know, I don't know if luck is necessarily the right word, but there is randomness that is in play with any decision you make. Um, but I think some old baseball great once said, it's funny how the more I practice, the luckier I get. Mm. <laughs> so there is agency in all that you do and those times when luck pays off. Blair Witch wouldn't have been as successful as it was or as lucky as it was had we not made the movie. Had we not, in those early days when there was no luck at play, it was we were strategizing and thinking of the, that, that movie and we had the right group of guys making the film. Um, so it's sort of like one of those questions that yeah, luck's always in place. You know, there, there's always randomness in play. There's always um, some level of of chance, right place at the right time with the right idea. Um, and you're that one one individual that 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 gets the gets the shot. There's certainly that at play. 
But if you're in that elevator with that executive and you've got that five minutes to give them that pitch, the pitch itself has got to be good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So the luck works, but you got to have the pitch. Otherwise, you could be the luckiest dude in the world and it all falls flat. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at on on the luck thing. You get you 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 can take advantages of those opportunities a lot more, but the idea, the the core person has to has to have something worthwhile for that for that to kind of blossom. Mm. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's hard to make a percentage on that, but there is definitely a percentage of, of, of luck involved and kind of randomness involved. Did you, when, when uh, Blair Witch was blowing yeah. up, did you realize there were elements of happenstance involved in that at the time? Did you, did you think to yourself, hey, I think we're getting pretty lucky here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were um, very cognizant of, of how, um, you know, sort of things were, 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 falling our way and i mean just i think with sort of the personalities of the press at the time we 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 allow the um the press we we never wanted intended to kind of fool the press and thinking it was real we wanted to let them in on the gag um early on so we wanted them to embrace the movie and by virtue of doing that they all loved the film they all wanted to love the movie because they were so tired of writing about Hollywood films. And this is this thing out of left field. And everyone for a time, regardless of who reviewed it, just loved the movie. They loved the spirit of the movie. They loved the rags to riches story of the movie. They loved the film. And that was very fortunate. That was very lucky for us, to, for them to, to still universally align with yeah. the film. But then one could argue, like, well, because you let them in on it, they felt like they were part of the club, right? So. Was it luck or was it your strategy, right? So um, I think it's a little mm -hmm. bit of both. You know, it's a little bit of both. It's 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 not all luck and it's not all strategy. Yeah, yeah. Lady luck works in mysterious ways. Well, Dan, I've yeah. loved this. You've yeah. uh, you've you've given me many cool. words of wisdom, and I and I really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Hey, tune in next week because we've got another banger on what it was like. We're going to hear about um, how a very vivid dream led to an Australian couple finding one of the biggest gold nuggets in global history and how it affected their lives. That's next week on What It Was Like. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you're thinking, hey, I've got a story that's, uh, that's pretty cool, something that could work for this show, you know, something interesting but surprising, a little bit unique, Please get in touch, hit me up. I'm always looking for story suggestions or feedback or, you know, whatever you got. I'm Julian Morgans on Instagram and Morgans Julian on X. And you know what? We'd love you to follow the show. You know the, the follow button on whatever your podcast app is. Just press that. We'll be eternally grateful. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Just a, just a simple five stars should do it. You don't even have to overthink it. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Tuffrey. It was edited and mixed by Nicholas Feliciano. Jimmy Saunders did our theme music. Our cover art is by Naomi Lee Beveridge. And this whole thing has been a super real production.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.